year, this time of year, there are so many storms whipping around us, uh, not just uh, rainstorms, re real emotional storms, financial storms, relational storms, spiritual storms. And one of the most serious and often secret storms that happens this time of year, in a way that, of course, it happens throughout the year, but this time of year is the storm of depression. There's, there's a Christmas depression that often can befall us. So many people telling us to cheer up and they don't know what's actually going on in our soul. So it's a secret storm often. And so I hope today's sermon speaks to you if you're experiencing Christmas depression. I think we experience it this time of year for so many reasons. One of them might be because of a narrative that's playing on loop in your head that goes something like this. Another year is almost in the books, and yet all those things that I've been hoping for and longing for and praying for have made it through another year unmet. Where is the hand of providence? And so the question we ask ourselves is, how do I go on longing for these things without falling deeper and deeper into depression? And when we ask this question, we may just be asking these two questions as well. Is there joy to be found? And if so, how in the world do I find it? So here it is. Here's the operative phrase. Finding joy now. Finding joy now. And what I'd like to show you today is that one, it is possible to live in joy now. We don't just have to wait for it to come in the future, though it will come in a unique and amazing way. And two, to find this joy that the Bible so often speaks of, that we so often speak of at this time of year, we actually must stop chasing it and realize that it's already found us. Joy found us. That is, if you have truly believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is your Savior from your sin, and you have made Him Lord of your life, believing that He is not dead, but alive, risen from the grave, and you've confessed that with your mouth. And if that's you, then you've been reborn. God has actually sent you the Spirit of God, and it is living in you. And Galatians 5.22 tells us what the fruits of that Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit living with us, what the fruits of that relationship bring into our life. So look at this. Galatians 5.22 says this. But the fruit, that's singular, notice that? Meaning every one of these things that he's about to list is a part of the fruit. So if you have the Spirit, you have all of these. The fruit of the Spirit is love, the greatest, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
If you have the Spirit of God, you have joy available to you in each and every breath that you breathe. Now, let me just say this about this verse. Some of you say, well, I've met people that have way more joy than me or way more love than me. Now, here's how the Spirit of God works. Do not compare yourself to other people who might just have a natural countenance different than yours. But if you truly have the Spirit of Christ living within you, you will have more joy than you used to have. You will have more love than you used to have. You will have more peace than you used to have. So there is always at least an extra measure of these things for those of us who have been given the Spirit of God, which comes when we are regenerated through new birth in Jesus Christ. You say, Dave, well, all I feel right now is the storm. I don't feel any of the joy. And so I want to walk through three things that we can do to refocus our internal eyes on that joy that is already available. It's already with us. It's right here, right now, no matter what storm you're in. It doesn't make the storm go away. It just means in the storm, the joy is there too. So three things we're going to walk through today of how you can access that joy in your longing for the fullness of God's promises to come. Now, here's a caveat. If you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. That's actually one of the reasons we exist as a church is to help people that are not yet Christians come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and hopefully, through their consideration of it, come to realize that it's true. And so the first thing that you'll need to do if you're not yet a Christian is to surrender your heart. We talked about that last week. Surrender your heart to Christ Jesus as your king so that he can send you the Holy Spirit and that you might experience joy, deep, bone-shaking joy that's available through life with God. You can do that today if you're not yet a Christian. Isn't that a great, that's just like, that should bring us joy. We can do that today. There's no, there's no class you have to take. Um, there's no amount of money you have to pay. There's nothing you have to do. You can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit today by surrendering your life to Christ, accepting his work of salvation through the cross and the resurrection. You can do that today, and God will send you the Spirit whose fruit is joy. Gosh, that's good news. For those of us who are already Christians, or if you decide to become a Christian today, or next week, or next month, or next year, these are the ways that I want to help you access joy, okay? Actually, now that I think of it, I think it's four. <laughs> Always adding as I go. Four, four uh, access points here, okay? For joy right now. Now, let me say this about joy, because I think, well, what is joy? Is joy the same thing as happiness? I don't think so. I think it's something deeper. Just like we talked about the peace of God is something deeper than just a physiological phenomenon. Joy is the same way. It's not just happiness. It can be related to happiness, but I think even if we aren't feeling happy, we can experience joy. There's something sort of foundational about it, that, that, and that's why we can experience joy even in the midst of the hardest storms, okay? And so the first thing goes like this. Uh, you can experience joy because there is joy in longing itself. 
There's joy in longing itself. So you've heard us say it. We said it last week. To live as a human being is to long for something. Like you cannot be a human being in this life and not long for something more. It's actually just uh, you can try to. You can try to put all sorts of philosophical boundaries around yourself so that you long for nothing, but deep down, you always long for something. To live is to long. It's part of the human experience. We all feel like there's something more to this life that we don't quite yet have access to. And this highlights another another important point. Uh, Longing means that we don't have everything that God will give to us. We don't have everything that God will give to us. So joy doesn't mean being happy with what you have. It's like, did that just come out of the pastor's mouth? Joy doesn't mean being happy with what you have, but being happy that you have anything at all and waiting patiently for the rest that you long for. So some, so I say that because sometimes we say like, well, just be happy with what you have. God would tell you, no, <laughs> long for more, but be happy that you have anything at all. Or you could say it this way. Joy is not the cessation of longing. The longing is our Joy. So, so don't fall into the trap of trying to stop longing for things. This has been done in a thousand ways, in a thousand lands. Suffering would end if we could cease to long for anything at all. That is not God's plan. God's plan is to give you everything that you long for. He's written it on your heart. So don't stop longing, that's not how you find joy, but actually realizing that joy is found in the longing itself. So I'm going to show you how this works. So read Isaiah, uh, if you've got a Bible, you can open with it, I should have mentioned that. Isaiah is right near the beginning of your Bible. If you don't have Bibles, there's some on the ends of your row, you can grab them and turn to Isaiah chapter 4 with me. Isaiah is in the Old Testament, he was a prophet. I'll actually just tell you what page this is on if you want to follow with me. Uh, in your Bible. So Isaiah 4, this is on page 366, if you have one of the uh, Bibles at the ends of your row, page 366. And, and here's what I'm going to show you in Isaiah. We've been in Isaiah this whole Advent series. Uh, Isaiah is doing two things uh, throughout his book. He's proclaiming oracles of judgment over the people of Israel because they have, have, have fallen into injustice and idolatry and they've stopped following God and listening to him and obeying him and doing it his way. And so judgment is coming, Isaiah will say, but he also says there's hope because there's a new Israel, a new Jerusalem coming, a new city filled with justice and peace for all the nations. So these are the two things that are happening in Isaiah, judgment and hope. An old Jerusalem and a new Jerusalem. And so what he'll say is the way that we go from the old to the new is there needs to be a purifying fire. The land needs to be purged of all sin. It needs to be removed from the face of the earth. And that he'll send a new, better king to come and rule from Jerusalem, not only just over Israel, but over all the nations. That's Isaiah's big themes throughout his book. And so when we come to Isaiah 4... 
uh, what we've actually seen. And I'll actually read for you here uh, the end of chapter 3 because it kind of gives you a highlight of how bad things have gotten in Jerusalem. And then he's going to shift to proclaiming hope in the new Jerusalem, okay? So uh, if you've got your Bible, look at chapter 4, verse 1 is actually a summary of the oracles of chapter 3. It says this, And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Now, why is this the, why is this the pinnacle of how bad things have gotten? Here's what's going on. The men of this city are so unprepared, immature, or completely gone that, that they're the ratio of godly men to godly women is one to seven. These women have no men to marry and to begin a family with, which is the longing of at least these women's hearts. And they should be alone and isolated, without family, because it's gotten so bad that the men of Jerusalem have really dropped the ball. Reminds me of our times, to be honest. Where are all the good men? This is just how bad it's gotten. Now here comes the hope. Verse 2. In that day, this is a, that day always, some future day. In that day, some future day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assembly a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame, flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Here's what he's saying. Just as in days of old, God will be with his people, protecting them, giving them abundance, giving them thriving underneath his protective watch with his glowing presence and glory with them. It's a beautiful picture of a future day. Now look here at this uh, this word branch. It says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. What, is he, what are you talking about here? Now, there's this imagery in Isaiah of uh, Israel being a tree and being chopped down by its surrounding enemies, okay? So picture here the desolation of a stump. And out of that stump grows a solitary flower. New life coming up out of death. That's the picture Isaiah's painting for us. And who is this branch? Well, this branch is actually the Messiah himself, the new and the better king. So turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll read a classic Christmas passage. But think of it now with the imagery of the new flower coming up out of the fallen tree, the stump 
of God's people who have experienced judgment. And now here comes the new king, the Messiah. So we're going to read uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 says this. But there will be no gloom for, for, her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is what the people will say. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the, and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, have been broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior is battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now here it is, the classic verse that many of us have heard. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You hear this? He will send a Messiah. He will send a branch to come and grow out of the stump of destruction. He will purge the land of sin and fire and out of it, resurrecting will be the people of God who will be ruled by their king, the Prince of Peace, forever. And there will be great joy. A child has been sent. A son has already been given. And upon him has been put the purging fire of the wrath of God. And he will come again and extend his reign over all nations and all people. That, of course, is a baby boy who was named Jesus, who was born 2,000 years ago. Now look at that last verse. Verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's how you can have joy now by thinking about the joy predicted and fulfilled in part in Isaiah chapters 4 and 9. There is great joy in anticipating a sure thing. Do you know that? There is great joy in anticipating a sure thing. We know it's sure because a son has been sent. We know it's sure because that son died and rose from the grave. And we know that the promises of God are trustworthy and true because he is giving us time and again, time and again a glimpse of everything that he is doing. And so we await his final return to fulfill the promise, we anticipate that, but we do so knowing that it is a sure thing, and that should bring us great joy, my friends. When you hear that, that should bring you great joy. 
I often find this in my own life, that anticipation is actually my favorite part of the thing itself. Have you experienced that? Anticipation for the thing is actually better than the thing itself. Oh my gosh, I'm going on this great vacation coming up in a couple days. I'm so excited about it. And it'll be a good time, but it's not even as good as thinking about sunshine. <laughs> okay, I'm thinking about going to California, thinking about the sunshine. The anticipation actually brings a kind of joy. Now, of course, when Christ returns, the anticipation will be overshadowed by the reality of the thing. He's the only thing that lives up to the hype, is what I'm saying. So he will surpass the hype, but there is something unique, a unique kind of joy that comes through the anticipation of a sure thing. Do you find this to be true? Here's, here's a weird, uh, one of the weird ways I feel this. Every time I get sick, the same thing happens when I come out of that sickness. There's like a day, maybe it's only like 12 hours, where I literally feel like Superman. Have you experienced this? You get sick and you feel, oh, you just feel so weak. And there's a moment right when you are getting better that you feel like you could flip over a car. Am I the only one? Have you experienced, you know what I'm talking about? Now it fades very quickly and then it becomes your new normal again and you're like, eh, life's okay. But there's a moment there where you feel so strong because you've just been living with this weight on you. Now when I anticipate, so I get sick and I'm like, I hate being sick, but then I'm like, but I'm experiencing joy knowing that for 12 hours I will feel like Superman. <laughs> See, I have joy. I have joy anticipating a sure thing. I know it because it happens every time I get sick and I get well. Now C.S. Lewis is sort of the master uh, of talking about this longing as joy, okay? Now, I'm going to give you an extended quote because I just think it's never a bad idea to read C.S. Lewis. So I'm going to give you an extended quote, so I want you to read with me. It's going to be up here on the screen. This is a quote from an essay that he's written, a sermon that he preached called The Weight of Glory, and I've actually posted it on the Facebook page. You could read the whole essay. It's about nine pages. This may be one of the best uses of 20 minutes of your time you can do. Read this, uh, but I want to read part of it. So think about these promises yet ahead of us Think about them right now, and you can experience a kind of joy. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, now, if you were made for heaven, the desire for our proper place will already be in us, but not yet attached to the true object, meaning we don't yet have life with God in perfect fellowship. And it will even appear as the rival of that, oh, sorry, place in us, but not yet attached to the true object, and will even appear as a rival of that object. And this, I think, is just what we find. And speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open an inconsolable secret in each one of you. Here's what he's saying. It's like this feeling that you have for this place that is not yet, that you've never experienced, but you know exists because it's been written on your heart. It, it, it almost feels weird to talk about it, okay? The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when the very intimate uh, in, that when in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent. Like when you talk about it, it becomes more real. We grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. Have you experienced when you're talking about something you're really longing for, you begin to kind of giggle at it? The secret we cannot hide and yet cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is, is it, it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. 
The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, the news from a country we have not yet visited. Okay? You tracking with me? This, this longing for this thing and that there's actually joy in thinking about it and talking about it. Now, what are those things? Here's what Lewis says he thinks the thing is that we're longing for. The promises of Scripture may very roughly be reduced to five heads. It is promised, firstly, that we shall be with Christ. Secondly, that we shall be like Christ. Thirdly, with an enormous wealth of imagery, that we shall have glory Fourthly, that we shall in some sense be fed or feasted or entertained. And finally, five, that we shall have some sort of official position in the universe, ruling cities, judging angels, being pillars of God's temple. Now, friends, think about those promises. These are the things written on our heart, promised to us by God. They are the things that we long for. When you think of them, if you do not experience joy, you're not thinking about them rightly. There is joy in even the mention of those promises. To think that those things will come to pass. And if you're not finding joy, you need to pray that God will give you the faith to believe that these things will come to pass. Is this making sense? This is so important. I want to give you one more illustration. There is a type of joy in being married but there's a type of joy in falling in love. You can experience the joy of falling in love even if that relationship doesn't lead to marriage. See that? They're two separate things. In our falling in love with Christ and anticipating His coming is a type of joy that is like but not the same as the joy of when He comes again. And we live and feast with him and rule with him in eternity. You see that? So do not downplay the joy of anticipation, of learning to know Christ through your sin, of coming to see him more fully. Now, of course, unlike broken relationships, once we pursue Christ and we give our heart to him, he will not lose it. It will always lead to the promises that C.S. Lewis just spoke of. But there is a distinctness in the joy. So there's joy and longing. And if you're not experiencing it, you need to long harder. <laughs> you need to think more upon the things to come. There's joy in the longing itself. And you can do that no matter the storm, no matter the suffering, no matter the tribulation. You can long for God's country. Okay, second, joy in life itself. There is joy, deep bone-level joy in the sheer being of the things of this world. So when you wake up, you feel the firmness of your mattress. It should bring you joy. Wow. When you bite into an apple, you should, you should experience joy. Whoa. When you feel the warmth of the sun on your face, wow. 
When our souls awake to the wonders, the daily wonders of living in God's world and its fascinating, endlessly complex, tactile, this quirky design of a world that we have, we should experience joy. The problem is we usually ignore these daily graces. We usually take them for granted. Perhaps we need to converse with a friend who is colorblind to find the joy again in the sunset. Perhaps we need to converse with a friend who has lost their hearing so that we might experience the joy of God's soundtrack. Soundtrack, not, not, yeah. Birds singing, the leaves rustling, the varied and magnificent symphony that water plays for us in a variety of ways. I love the sound of water. When's the last time you just listened to water? Now let me show you, you see that? That's a joy of living. Let me show you how these two are connected because all of these joys build off themselves and when they come together like a great math equation, they create something even better. Let me show you. So think about the sound of water as C.S. Lewis exclaims of these joys we experience now in just living. He says, they are faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter. Here's what he's saying. When you experience the sound of a babbling brook and the beauty of that noise, it is a far-off, faint, filtered version of the real thing. So even though you should experience joy when you hear the babbling brook, it should also make you begin to long for standing at the fountainhead and hearing the roaring water from its source. You see how they play together? You see how they dance one with the other? So yes, I experience the apple, but then I think about what would an apple taste like standing in the kingdom of God? Oh, the beauty. Enjoying life as we have it now, but also longing in joy for the fullness of those faint echoes of his perfect creation. Number three, the joy of forgiveness. This might be the most important one of all. There is abundant joys in salvation itself. Do you enjoy God's grace daily? Lamentations 3.23 says, His mercies are new every morning. It truly is the gift that keeps on giving. Now I want to read to you Isaiah 12. Let's throw it up here real quick, Ryan. Isaiah 12 says this. You will say in that, in that day, that's that future day, talked about in, in uh, chapters 4 and 9, I will give thanks to, the, to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Keep going here. Next slide. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. When is that day? It's now. The child has been born, the son has been given, God's mercy has looked upon us in Christ. Instead of seeing our sin 
and pouring out wrath upon us, Christ has hid, uh, or God has hid us in Christ and poured out on Calvary his wrath due our sin and we are covered by it. And instead of anger, we experience his comfort. Instead of judgment and death, we experience new life by the Spirit. This is the day. We have this. And so every day, with joy, you should draw water from the well of sal- salvation and exalt the name of your Savior, Jesus Christ, every day, my friends. And if nothing else, in this life, if you have nothing else, if all you have is pain and sorrow, sorrow and torture and trauma in this life, if you have this salvation, you can have joy. You should have joy. Because each and every day, his mercies are new. I'm not saying it cancels out the sadness. I'm not saying we should not lament. I'm not saying the pain is gone. I'm not saying the trauma is not real. The hardships are not hard. The sufferings are not sufferings. But I'm saying they can coexist with the joy of knowing God's grace every day. So I want to practice this. I want you right now to start thinking. This is how it could happen every day. I want you to start thinking about how guilty you were how stained by sin you were before you reached out and accepted God's free gift of grace made possible to you by Jesus' death and resurrection. I want you to think about it. Not because it's still guilt, it's been taken away, but I just, it doesn't mean you, don't, you forgot. I want you to think about that. Are you thinking about it? Now think of how utterly incapable you were to live a perfect life. Now think of how helpless you were to remove that stain and that guilt on your own. Now think about God sending his son into this world to save you. And think about Jesus on that cross receiving the penalty for your sin. Now look at your hands. I want you to actually look at them. Do you see how clean they are? Do you see that they aren't stained by the blood of your sin? Do you, do you see that the guilt and the shame is gone? Do you know that? What do you feel? Shocked? Surely that's a good feeling. Undeserving? Absolutely. But you shouldn't feel guilt. You shouldn't feel shame. You shouldn't feel terror at the judgment of God, you should feel joy. Deep, thankful, head-shaking, laughing joy because your dad loved you so much that he paid your debt. The joy of forgiveness is an unmatched joy. My three-and-a-half-year-old son, Grayson, he gets this. He does something wrong, and he usually knows he's done something wrong, and he knows that he's in trouble, and he knows that I'm angry, but when I come to him, and he says sorry, and I hug him, there is a joy on his face that's so recognizable, because it's a joy I feel with my Heavenly Father. It's this weird thing, That even now, he knows the joy of reconciliation. Nothing compares to the joy of reconciliation. Not his gummy bears, not the land before time. There's like 13 of those movies, if you didn't know that. 
Not his train tracks. Nothing compares to the joy of reconciliation. And he doesn't know how to explain it. I just see it in his face. And I think this gives us perspective on why God allows sin and evil and hardship and separation to enter his good world. Because nothing compares to the joy of reconciliation. I hope you're experiencing that joy. I want you to stand up. Stand up real quick. Stand up. Quick. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a question right now. Better movie. Better movie. Okay. Forrest Gump or Titanic. Turn to your neighbor. Tell him. Better movie. Forrest Gump or Titanic. Ten seconds. Tell your neighbor. Better movie. Forrest Gump or Titanic. Okay. Go ahead and sit down. Go ahead and sit down. Do you know what I just did to you? I thoroughly distracted you from pondering the glories of salvation to think about some little entertainment. And that's what the world does to you again and again and again and again. Now I'm going to show you how to get back to joy. Ready? I want you to think of your sin. I want to think of the stain on your hands. I want to think that you could not save yourself. And then I want you to think about your father sending his son to die in your place. What do you feel? I hope you feel joy. His mercies are new every morning, every moment, every millisecond, and it's always available to you joy if you just stop and think about that truth. And then I could have you stand up again and I could distract you again. And you know what I'd say to you? Now I want to think about somebody you love so much who has given their life to Jesus and that you know that his joy is for them too, that he died for them too, that you'll get eternity with them too. Maybe it's a sister. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a spouse. Christ did that for them. What do you feel? You should feel joy overflowing in you. And all you have to do is think about it. Why aren't you experiencing that joy daily? The world is distracting you from it. It's trying to give you counterfeit joys when all you have to do is remember the cross and the resurrection of Jesus for you and for those you love and for life eternal. There's joy. There's joy in salvation. Fourth, there's joy in mission. As we've just said, there's joy in thinking about those whom God has already saved, who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, but there's also joy in participating with God in reconciling others to him, others to their creator. Look at John 1, 1 John 1 through 5. Uh, the Apostle John writes this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We want you to be connected like we are to Jesus. Look at this and here it is. Four, and we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. What's well, selfish. No, it's not. 
God wants our joy to be complete. And what's happening here, and John recognizes it, is there is a joy to participating in the reconciling processes of God. And only if you do that can you experience complete joy in this life. So it's not selfish to want what God already wants for us. But John rightly says, I cannot experience the fullness of joy unless I participate in helping you be reconciled to Christ. And so help people be reconciled to Christ. Help them experience the joy of forgiveness. Help them experience the joy of relationship with their God and Creator. This is how joy comes to us. And guess what? It doesn't matter what hardship you're going through. It doesn't matter what you do not have. At every moment of every day, you have the opportunity to help reconcile people to Christ. And there's joy in that. It's available to you even as you long for more and more of the promises of God. You can participate in that. So if maybe you're feeling depressed this Christmas. Do something so paradoxical in your depressed state. I'm not saying stop being depressed. I'm saying in your depressed state, go tell a family member or a friend this Christmas about the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. And they'll look at you and say, what in the world? How can you speak of this joy even though I know that you're struggling with depression? So don't lie about your depression. Don't put on a happy, clappy face. But tell them about this deeper thing, this joy that coexists with your tribulations, with your trials, with your frustrations, knowing that they do not define you, but the love of Christ Jesus, your Lord, defines you. And you'll find joy, even in the midst of your depression. I want to finish with the words of Jesus as we try to find joy this Christmas, as we try to long for his second coming, anticipate the coming joys, but doing so in joy. I want to finish with the words of Jesus himself, so I'd ask you to uh, just bow your heads, close your eyes, and I'm going to pray the words of Jesus over you, okay? I'm going to pray, so close your eyes and listen. These are Jesus' words to you. He says this to you, my friends. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament while the world rejoices. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you now. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Now, keeping your eyes closed, friends, I want you to bring your hands together in front of you with your palms facing the heavens like you're creating a little cup for the water to drink, to drink of the joys of salvation in Christ. Now, doing that, keeping your eyes closed and your hands open in front of you, I want to pray over you. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we pray Give us joy, especially for my friends, Father, who are struggling this season with depression, who find themselves in tribulation and trial and suffering. God, I pray, give them joy. Fill up their cup with joy. 
with the knowledge of who you are and what you have done for them and what you will do. Father, we pray, too, against all the thieves of joy. We pray against them, Father, that no human or non-human agent will come and snatch from us the joy that you've given to us. We pray against the cynics who find fault in everything. We pray against the critics who make everything a comparison. We pray against the charlatans who sell false goods and false hope and false cures that relate nothing to the joys of knowing you, God. We pray against the thieves, and we pray that this Christmas you fill up our cup as we long in joy. Amen.